The time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WRT's local news for Tuesday, February 6th. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. And I'm your host, Vince Hesperk. In tonight's news, last Thursday, advocates held a community forum on Wisconsin's prison lockdowns. The spring primary is just two weeks away, and one candidate running for the Dane County Board says it's time for students to make their voices heard. And in the second half, Cardinal Call is back from its winter hiatus. An expert discusses voting maps, and the common loon gets the spotlight. This is Vince Hesperk and Sarah Hopeful with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. Last year's race for state Supreme Court justice attracted the most spending of any in the nation. That and its potential to flip the ideological control of the state's top court meant it was more than just a horse race, but it also quite literally was a horse race. New reporting finds that the campaign for then-judge Janet Protasiewicz discreetly placed horses in advertisements about her opponent, Dan Kelly. The horses were an inside campaign joke, according to Protasiewicz's former campaign manager, who spilled the beans in an interview a couple weeks ago. They were allegedly intended to refer to a campaign joke that her opponent looked like someone who fornicates with horses, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. A review of video advertisements from last spring found that at least three instances of horses in the background. Another radio ad also featured a horse whinny when referring to her opponent, reports the Journal Sentinel. Republican leadership in the state's audit committee are looking to deposit $97 million in Wisconsin's general fund per WIS politics. That fund is used to finance daily and long-term government functions, and state lawmakers have a say in how that money is spent. The $97 million is interest generated from federal COVID-19 recovery funds. The governor has sole authority over how federal dollars are spent. And according to the Evers administration, the state is required to track any federal money, which would be a challenge if it's sitting in the general fund. However, the co-chairs of the Audi committee contend that the interest didn't come directly from the feds and is not subject to those restrictions. The Department of Administration is awaiting further guidance from, from the United States Treasury before depositing the money. Presidential hopeful Dean Phillips says he'll stay in the race to challenge President Biden for the Democratic nomination, at least through Wisconsin's presidential preference primary in April. Phillips has been trying to get on Wisconsin's primary ballot, which is not decided by state election officials, but by a presidential preference selection committee who decided to leave him off. But he will appear on the April ballot after a lawsuit he filed resulted in the state Supreme Court ordering at the end of last week that his name be put on the ballot. The State Department of Justice, in defending the earlier decision to leave Phillips off, argued that Phillips failed to take advantage of the other way to get on the ballot, collecting the requisite 8,000 signatures statewide. Last week, Governor Evers called Phillips' lawsuit ridiculous. Other state Democrats have also ridiculed the lawsuit. Phillips tells WISN's upfront that his Democratic colleagues are acting, quote, irresponsible and dangerous. UW-Madison confirmed that there is an active case of tuberculosis in a campus residence hall, reports UW student newspaper The Daily Cardinal. Students at the dorm were told by student health services to get tested for tuberculosis last week, while also being told they have no cause for immediate concern. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the student with the active case of tuberculosis hasn't been on campus since December. There were just 10 active cases of TB in Dane County last year, and over 450 latent cases of the bacterial infection. Interviews kicked off today with the finalists for the position of superintendent of Madison Schools. 
The three finalists were announced last week by the Madison Metropolitan School District. Nearly 60 people from across the nation applied for the position. And today, students at MMSD led the first round of interviews, asking the candidates how they'd collaborate with the school community and their approach to ensuring equity and success for students. Another interview panel, this time from parents and caregivers, starts tonight at 6.30 p.m. You can watch live online at the MMSD TV YouTube page. The interviews will also be available to view online afterward. It's two weeks before the spring primary and in-person early absentee voting opened up today. If you live in Madison, you might not have anything on your ballot. Only two Dane County su- supervisor seats have more than two candidates, meaning they head first to the t- February 20th primary. Those county supervisor seats are District 13, which represents UW-Madison campus neighborhoods, especially around Regent Street, and District 36, which represents Cottage Grove, Pierceville, Door Creek, and Nora. The Milton Cross Plains Area School District will have a primary. Early voting locations are at several Madison libraries, including Central Library, Pinney Library on Cottage Grove Road, and Metal Ridge Library on Raymond Road. Hours, locations, and other information is available at the City of Madison's clerk office at cityofmadison.com clerk. Those were the headlines, and now on to the rest of today's top stories. Last Thursday, three Wisconsin advocacy groups, Wisdom, Moses, and Expo, hosted a community forum to discuss the detrimental effects of prison lockdowns. They met with elected officials and outlined opportunities for transformational justice in Wisconsin. WRT's David Ahrens was there. State correction officials and the governor say that the continuing lockdown in Wisconsin prisons is due to a shortage of correction officers. But that gets at only one side of the equation. Advocates contend that the problem isn't too few guards. The problem is too many prisoners. Last Thursday, the leading organizations advocating for deep reform of Wisconsin prisons met to discuss strategies for addressing the ongoing crisis. One speaker noted, when the pandemic started, the Department of Corrections released almost 2,000 prisoners who had been incarcerated for merely technical violations of their parole or probation. That is, they had not committed a new crime. Wisconsin has one of the highest rates of reincarceration due to technical violations of parole and probation in the nation. Speaker after speaker talked about specific examples of the inhuman conditions and isolation faced by inmates. They talked about their frustration with the governor who had promised to cut the prison population in half. But after five years, there's been no reduction in population and conditions have declined. I asked David Liners, the director of the statewide network, Wisdom, what was the purpose of the meeting? We're kind of tired of the narrative that, you know, the problem is that there's not enough guards, when the real problem is that there's just too many people in our prisons. And we've got people in these ancient, crumbling uh, facilities, and it doesn't matter how many staff we have. We just really need to move out the people who don't need to be in prison in the first place to be sure that we actually have decent facilities and enough space for the people who remain. The the first one is to reduce the number of people who go back to prison on crimeless revocations. That is, people who are on supervision who are sent back to prison because they violated a rule of supervision, not because they've committed a new crime. Mm-hmm. but because they violated some kind of a rule. Wisconsin sends way more people like that back to prison than most other states do. 
So we have 5,000 people in Wisconsin prisons right now who are there not because they committed a crime, but because they broke a rule of supervision. And to put that in perspective, that's 5,000 people. All the people in the Green Bay and Waupun prisons combined is 2,000. James Wilbur, former director of prison outreach, talked about the reality of prisons as opposed to the hype from the Department of Corrections. We know that Governor Evers and Secretary Carr issued a press release indicating sweeping measures were going to be taken to resume normal operations at these two facilities. Pointedly, it's false. Nothing significant, nothing of substance has happened at either Waupun or Green Bay. The men in these facilities are, being, are continuing to be subject to nothing less than vicious conditions. I really need to emphasize that word. The conditions that these men are being subjected to are absolutely vicious. We've, we've, you know, we've shared the stories, we've had the news report comes out. Waupun and Green Bay is infested with rodents, right? Like you have mice crawling under their doors. Think about what that kind of living situation would be like when you're subjected to a six by eight cell for up to 23 and one half hours a day with no access to recreation, no access to artificial light, no programming. Your ability to communicate with your family and your friends is virtually unknown because you don't know if you're gonna get a phone call. You don't know if your tablet's gonna be operable. They've been subject to food conditions where they've been getting bagged lunches at Wapan twice a day, one hot meal and we don't even call it hot. They're not getting access to adequate psychological care, to health services, to dental care. We received reports over and over again about men dealing with some pretty serious and chronic conditions, and they weren't even able to go to the health services unit. We know that it's been publicized in a lawsuit that's currently pending against Wapan. There are actually documented records. Well, you should just pray to get better. Responses like that, or I can just give you Tylenol for people who are dealing with heart conditions, who have neurological conditions, right? These are the responses that they're getting. It's entirely unacceptable. I'm, I know all of you are here, and so thank you for your commitment, but I can't emphasize it enough. These conditions are not how you treat human beings. It's not okay. And the Department of Corrections has communicated a narrative to both the governor and to the public how they are moving forward in a direction to ease up the lockdowns. Well, we had this press release released in October, or early November, excuse me, in early November. There is still no movement on any wide scale. Governor Evers claimed that there is a capital campaign to determine what renovations need to be done or if perhaps just a new institution has to be created. That capital campaign process began under Governor Walker then in 2016. And we're now in 2024 and you're just saying that you're looking at capital improvement needs for Wapan? It's inexcusable. The claims in the press release about segregation, about reducing the use of segregation, heightening uh, security rounds. Those were the public facing narratives that the Department of Corrections communicated in 2015 under then Secretary Ed Wall. So what they're saying is false. It does not have the substance that they're claiming. 
And I just urge you to remember this one fundamental truth. These men are suffering beyond any acceptable or reasonable conditions, despite what their criminal record may be. These facilities are unfit for human habitation. And we know that the Department of Corrections, the legislature, and Governor Evers can take immediate and decisive action now. It is possible. I asked Mark Rice, coordinator of Transformational Justice for Wisdom, what is crimeless revocation and his own experience with it? So we know that in Wisconsin, 5,200 people are in the prison system right now for what we call revocation without a new conviction or crimeless revocation. And that was from a Columbia Justice Lab report called the Wisconsin Community Corrections Story from New York City. We partnered with them to do this report back in 2019. So we're talking about really minor infractions in some cases, so people can get sent back for missing an appointment with the probation officer, for crossing a county line without prior agent approval, for unauthorized computer or cell phone use. It can be even an arrest for, during a mental health crisis, someone could get arrested for disorderly conduct, actually get a charge, then have the charge dismissed, but even though after it's dismissed, normally you just go home if you weren't under probation, but a person under probation can then, the probation officer actually has the power to move forward with the revocation process. So it actually happened to me. They sent me to the Milwaukee Security Detention Facility in Milwaukee for six months after I'd been arrested. I had a mental health crisis. The judge, public defender, prosecutor all agreed it was a mental health crisis. The judge dismissed the case. But then my probation officer in Milwaukee, who had no specialized training in mental health issues, decided to move forward with the revocation process. Senator Kelder Royce described her own experience as an attorney and as a resident of Wisconsin. Um, I went to the University of Wisconsin Law School where I had the opportunity to participate in the Innocence Project. And uh, as a clinical student, I went to many of the prisons around the state. And I saw firsthand how challenging the conditions were in prison. Um, And I think that many Wisconsinites Uh, What is out of sight is out of mind, and we don't realize the money that is being spent and what is being done in our name and with our permission, um, and how not only does it dehumanize people, and not only does it harm families and communities, but it makes us all less safe. And ultimately, the goal of the criminal justice system, and my goal, as, as a mother and someone who wants the best for every child in the state, is to have safe communities. This is David Ahrens for WORT.
It's now 621 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The 2024 spring election season is ramping up. In terms of local elections, the big two races on the ballot are for Dane County Board of Supervisors. Only two Dane County board seats have more than two candidates. That means that they are first headed to the spring primary in two weeks on February 20th. And today we kick off our series of conversations with the candidates. This week we'll take a look at District 13 where three candidates are vying to represent Madison's near west side. The top two finishers from the primary will move on to the spring election on April 2nd. Tonight, we sit down with our first candidate, Travis Austin, a 22-year-old alum of UW-Madison. He discussed some of his priorities with WORT news producer, Faye Parks. Thank you for joining me, Travis. Glad to be here. So to start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your background and what inspired you to run for the Dane County Board? I am a recent graduate from UW-Madison. I graduated in 2023 with a degree in political science, as well as undergrad certificates in public policy and environmental studies. This fall, I'll actually be starting my master's in public affairs through the Follett School and will be continuing my studies that way into policy analysis and those type of data analyses when it comes to choosing what policies are best and that type of stuff. Outside of school, I currently work for the UW Athletic Department in an office manager like office position. And volunteering work, I volunteer with the Badger Boys State Program. It's a volunteer-run program for junior to soon-be seniors in high school uh, over the summer. That is a week-long course about civics and engagement. And on top of that, we also try to teach them about leadership and healthy masculinity and stuff like that as well. And lastly, I also am a member of the UW Health HIV AIDS uh, Comprehensive Care Community Advisory Council. And so I'm one of the members of the organization and actually being considered for the uh, co-chair position at our upcoming meeting in February. And so what kind of background do you have in politics? So yeah, my background in politics started over the COVID times. I was a freshman at Madison and got you know booted back home out of the dorms when COVID hit in 2020. And that got me interested in my local politics. I picked up cycling over COVID and you're very in tune with your local road quality when you are on a bicycle versus a car. I then felt compelled to initially do a write-in campaign for my local town board. Didn't win that, but then I went back at it again, still feeling connected to my local hometown in the town of Barrie in northwestern Dane County. I actually won and got on the town board there and I was glad to be able to serve there for the past two years and then also on top of that I now have found myself just after I've graduated from undergraduate school and I found myself far more connected to the Madison community and I feel I can bring my knowledge and leadership and experience in the elected office and also through the studies I've been doing at UW-Madison to the Dane County Board. So what are your priorities for District 13? What changes would you like to see there? The biggest priorities that Dane County District 13 really need to see is because it's a mostly majority student district, right? And the biggest concerns us students have is affordability of housing near campus, right? And it's, not, it's an issue that's prevalent in Dane County at large. However, there's been a lack of housing density near campus. And so I'm hoping to be able to invest county funds into increasing housing density in the county and aim some of those funds directly towards the UW-Madison campus area to be able to leave those stressors on the campus population and also be able to develop sustainably. Increasing density is the best way forward when it comes to how we choose to develop our county. We have robust job growth, specifically in the tech sector with Epic and Exact Sciences. And so I'm hoping to be able to develop the county in a more comprehensive and sustainable way rather than continuing urban sprawl that we've seen across you know, American history. So as you mentioned, affordable housing is a countywide issue. Are there any other countywide issues that you'd like to prioritize? 
So yeah, I had mentioned that I have, you know, experience being an advocate for HIV related concerns and stuff. And so that has just shown me the underside of our healthcare system and specifically also our mental health care system. I struggled myself to be able to find access to mental health care and many other people do as well. This ties in with criminal justice reform because so many people who end up interacting with our criminal justice system just simply have mental health concerns that aren't being properly addressed because they cannot find adequate care. And so I'm hoping to address those root concerns, both in healthcare access and mental health care access, and also the criminal justice system to be able to then have a comprehensive approach to these inequities that we see. Well, you mentioned criminal justice reform. That is a fairly large talking point this year. And you mentioned how mental health care is extremely important to this issue. Are there any other specific programs or projects that you would like to focus on when it comes to criminal justice reform? Other systemic large problems I'd like to see is I'm glad to have heard the announcement from the Dane County Sheriff's Office of a pilot program of police body cameras. I think it's a great step forward in transparency and accountability from the Dane County Sheriff's Office. That's just a very first step when it comes to addressing these concerns of racial inequality that we have in the county. Our county has been scoring one of the lowest metrics of having about half of our population in the Dane County Jail being minorities, while only about 6% of our actual total population is classified under that. So it's an immense disparity that we need to address and find the root causes that are causing people to interact with the criminal justice system and make sure that we can divert these people before they ever even have to interact with them in the first place. Meanwhile, there is a race to take on County Executive Parisi's role after his retirement. What is your perspective on that? How do you think this transition will affect the county board as a whole? Yeah, Parisi has been a massive figure in Dane County politics for the longest time. And now that he's choosing to you know, retire from the role, it opens the door for a new perspective. I'm glad to see that we have uh, plenty of great candidates that are you know, running for the position. But in the interim time, the county board will actually be the one to choose an interim county executive. And so I think making sure that whoever serves in that caretaker role also takes all these immense concerns that also the county board see existing in our communities it should be a top priority for us to make sure that knowing that these things are have been, you know, potentially like left by the wayside and that we need to be addressing them with all urgency, even if this person is only there in the interim capacity until the election in November. All right. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I just hope that everyone can, you know, get out to vote in the district and everything, especially students. I know that getting them to vote in a primary where there's only a singular issue on the ballot for a local primary is often difficult, but every single vote matters. and. I hope that everyone can you know, have their voice heard. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Travis. Thank you. That was Travis Austin, one of three candidates vying for the District 13 seat on the Dane County Board. District 13 covers part of UW-Madison's campus and the city's near west side. Later this week, we'll hear what Austin's opponents have to say. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Vince Hesbrick. Thanks for joining us. It's time for Cardinal Call, a segment featuring news from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper at UW-Madison. Our new host, Oliver Gerhartz, is carrying the torch this semester. And this week, Oliver spoke with the Daily Cardinal's campus news editor, Liam Barron, about a recent data breach affecting the University of Wisconsin system. 
Hello and welcome to Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of UW-Madison campus news from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm your host, Oliver Gearhurst. Last year, a massive global data breach affected tens of millions of people and thousands of organizations. One affected organization was the National Student Clearinghouse, through which 160,000 UW system records were stolen. Today we're joined by campus news editor Liam Barron to discuss the data breach and the UW system's response. Thanks for being here, Liam. Thank you for having me, Oliver. So when did the data breach take place? So the day breach occurred in the NSC's infrastructure on May 29th, 2023. UW was notified on June 28th, 2023. So it was about a month span uh, until the UW system knew. I feel like it's important to establish the responses of other universities once they were aware of the data breach. Yeah, so there was quite a few universities that ended up doing a more public response in terms of their data breaches. When they got that June notification, or whenever it was from the NSC, they put out notifications to their students or former applicants, employees, campus-facing notifications that said, hey, the NSC has suffered a data breach. Some of our information was in there. We're still assessing. We're still trying to figure out what all sort of information could have been compromised in this. So that was, you know, method that some other universities took. Um, the two that I detail in this article are the University of Illinois system and Michigan State University, which both put out public-facing statements um, and both had spokespeople who justified those methods to me as sort of a harm reduction and also education tool to make sure people know what to do in case their data gets breached. Yeah. So now that we've got that established, what was the UW system's response? Yeah. So the UW system chose not to put out a public notification. In September, UW system schools were eventually named in regulatory reports to California regulators. The NSC submitted, but there's never any sort of public acknowledgement of that. And no news broke from that. But the UW system justified that sort of response in a statement to me as seeing that the data breach didn't have that large of an impact and that it was ultimately contained to a very small number of people. They didn't provide me an exact number, even with repeated questions, so we're still unsure how many people that was. But they said that, you know, throughout the entire process, they were confident that there wasn't a large enough gravity to justify a public response that might have caused people to be more concerned than they should have been. Was their lack of a public-facing statement legal? It's complicated. I'm not a lawyer. The information security professor who I spoke to, one of them isn't a lawyer and the other one isn't as well. But there was a concern that Wisconsin has a data breach law that mandates that organizations who suffer data breaches need to reach out to people within 45 days of learning that they've suffered a data breach. There was a line in an email that I received related to these cyber attacks that said that there were records for which UW couldn't match the address to the person whose information was leaked. So there's a question of what response the UW is legally required to do in that situation. Under state law, if a organization cannot connect the address of a person who they haven't previously contacted to a record, they're required to give some sort of alternate notification system. That could be a TV disclaimer, that could be something in a newspaper, but they are required to sort of somehow try to get in contact in a way that's reasonably calculated to provide notice. And the UW system didn't tell me what that response was. I did ask them about that, and that wasn't included in the statement I received back. So we're unsure. The NSC is a third party, and that's something that people have stressed to me as I've been reporting on this. So it's unclear if that data breach law would apply to the UW in this circumstance, because it wasn't their data breach. It was the NSC's. Oh. 
On the topic of it being a third party, I think there's a lot of questions raised of what third parties have access to UW system data. Yeah, that's that's been a pretty consistent concern I've heard about in my reporting on this. The two information school professors I talked to both separately mentioned that, you know, the NSC does have access to a large, large, large amount of student information, not just from the UW, but from schools across the country. And, you know, there are questions about what are they doing with all that information? Do they need to actually have all that information to fulfill their role? So there was a you know, big concern. Um, one of the things that a information school professor, Dorothea Salo, mentioned to me was that she would like to see the UW system adopt data minimization uh, policies. So whenever they're sending off data to a third party, whether that's, you know, the National Student Clearinghouse or any of the other various third parties that they work with, that the amount of data they send should be as minimal as possible so that the third party can still do their job. And, you know, this isn't just a UW issue. Across higher education, institutions have problems with data breaches and they have concerns about the amount of data that's being sent to third parties. So, you know, I, I think that is something that's on people's minds, especially as we keep seeing cyber attacks become an increasingly common part of the higher education sphere and generally the online world we live in. Is there anything you learned over the course of your reporting that stuck out to you? Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things I learned about was that it's not always a clear-cut decision in terms of data breach notifications, public-facing ones. In private, you know, you want to make sure that you're informing whoever has data breached, uh, whoever can be tied to records, hey, your data is at risk, you should take these protective actions. For the public, there is some disagreement in terms of, you know, if you keep issuing data breach notifications, if people keep receiving these and they don't see any direct impact on their personal lives, would this eventually create a boy who cried wolf effect? You know, would people just start to ignore these? But then at the same time, there's a, a, a counter argument that, you know, these data breaches allow legislators and they allow the public to know when their data is being breached and know better solutions to take care of it. It means that people can take legislative action or policy action in order to circumvent these or change the sort of systems in place that might allow them to occur. So it was interesting to learn about the sort of not clear consensus on what the best move is in all given circumstances. University officials I talked to at the University of Illinois and the Michigan State University, you know, said that they want to inform students and their community members about the risks of data breaches and make sure they could take protective actions before their data was accessed or before, you know, harm would fall upon their credit, their financial life, their personal life, etc. But the professor at UW-Madison School of Information that I talked to also said, you know, we aren't always clear if data breach notifications really cause people to change their behaviors in that sort of way. And so it's interesting to learn about the sort of mixed consensus on what the best approach is to handle data breach notifications to the public. Has the UW system issued any new statements since your article came out? There was no statement from the UW system itself, but the University of Wisconsin system president, Jay Rothman, attended a luncheon that the Milwaukee Press Club was holding. And he did address some questions from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel's higher education reporter, Kelly Meyerhofer, on this subject. And he, you know, said sort of the same things that the UW system spokesperson had said to me. The UW system was confident that it followed the law, that the data breach had a mostly minimal impact, and that, you know, they, they feel good about their response to, to what happened. Thanks for talking with us today, Liam. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Oliver. In other campus news, Robert Golden will be resigning as the dean of the UW-Madison School of Medicine and Public Health. Golden said he looks forward to returning to life as a faculty member once the leadership baton is passed. 
In other news, the university announced a 14% increase in minimum stipends for grad student teaching, research, and project assistance. These changes will take effect in the 2024 to 2025 academic year. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by UW-Madison student journalists. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. It's now 6.42 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Late last year, the state Supreme Court determined that Wisconsin's legislative maps are unconstitutional. Now, the 2024 election cycle is approaching fast, and the court is reviewing several remedial map proposals. But what makes for a good redistricting map? On Wednesday's 8 o'clock buzz, host Brian Standing spoke to John D. Johnson. Johnson, a research fellow in the Lou Barr Center for Public Policy at Marquette University, shared his perspective on the issue. After issuing a December 22nd ruling declaring Wisconsin's legislative district maps unconstitutional, the Wisconsin Supreme Court now finds itself the arbiter of a half dozen replacement maps proposed by Governor Evers, academics, legislators, and activist law firms. To help them with this task, the court's liberal majority hired two consultant political scientists, Bernard Grofman of University of California, Irvine, and Jonathan Servas of Carnegie Mellon University. On February 1, the two consultants dismissed maps drawn by the state legislature and the conservative law firm Will as, quote, partisan gerrymanders not worthy of further consideration, unquote. Unsurprisingly, Republicans cried foul, claiming bias on the part of the two consultants. But all this begs the question, what makes for a good redistricting map? Here to help us with the nuts and bolts of map making is John D. Johnson, a research fellow in the Lubar Center for Public Policy at Marquette University. Welcome to the 8 o'clock buzz. Hey, thanks for having me. So what, has there ever been a consensus on what constitutes a fair map? I would say not in Wisconsin. If you look back at the history of redistricting here, it's been remarkably contentious. As far back as I've been able to see, you know, the, the modern era of redistricting begins in the 1960s after the Baker versus Carr and some other U.S. Supreme Court decisions, which established the idea that you needed to have equal populations in districts, the one person, one vote rules. But even before that, it was a lot of court battles, a lot of bickering over what the standards ought to be. There was a time where Republicans thought that, you know, land ought to be factored into the calculation of where districts should be, not just population. It's hard to find a consensus at any point. Now, even in this sort of more modern era where there are some standards, at least uh, around this, that are articulated in statute and in case law, it's still not an easy task. I mean, the, even this concept of equal population can be really difficult to achieve. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. Equalizing populations across districts is ostensibly the entire reason we do a redistricting cycle. And the standards for that vary. Uh, so the most commonly used way of measuring population equality is you find the range between the most populous district and the least populous district, and then you divide that range by the ideal district size, and we call that the population deviation. Existing case law across the country kind of establishes that 
less than 5% population deviation for a redistricting plan is probably okay, and more than that is very suspicious. But most plans that I've seen in Wisconsin try to get a population deviation that's much smaller than that, less than 2% or even less than 1%. In the congressional districts, they use an even stricter standard where they try to have deviation of not more than one person between the plans, but that's not necessary because the census data itself is not that accurate. So, you know, extreme literal equal person fidelity to when your data source is not even that accurate is, I think, not a useful exercise. But that, you know, 1%, 2%, even up to 5% population deviation metric is what most places use. So let's back up a second. You talked about an ideal population for each district. And basically what we're doing there is we're taking the total population of the state and dividing it by the number of legislative districts. Is that right? That's right. And how do we determine how many legislative districts there are? Yeah, so that's from, in Wisconsin, our state constitution, um, which we're allowed to have not more than 99 assembly districts. And then the Senate districts are each made up of three constituent assembly districts. So we talk about two different maps, you know, the Senate map and the assembly map, but the Senate map is a function of the assembly map in this way. So we've got our number, and then we're, we're trying to hit these populations. Now, one of the things that's been happening in terms of population dynamics in Wisconsin is that there's lots of rural areas that are sort of flat or even losing population. And then there's a couple of urban areas uh, in the state that are growing, Dane County being probably the most significant example. So how do those dynamics, uh, first off, how are they intended to be adjusted when you're looking at redistricting maps? And what has happened in the past that's kind of skewed that? Yeah, so you've, you know, identified the places where the populations need to be rebalanced the most. And, you know, in in a state like Wisconsin, the population changes aren't dramatic in most places. Dane County has seen pretty dramatic growth in most other places. It's been pretty flat. So I think it would be useful here to explain the Legos, the puzzle pieces that are used to assemble these districts, because there's been some contention over that over time. So today we use census blocks. There's about 200,000 very small areas that the Census Bureau tabulates population in. It's the smallest geography that the Census Bureau publishes any information about. They can be as small as one sort of high-rise apartment building or, you know, perhaps several acres in a rural area. In a sort of standard suburban or urban area, it might be one or two city blocks comprises a, a census block. These are currently the small areas that are used to build a district, and you can make very small changes with them because so few people live in each one. Now, it used to be that districts had to be drawn with wards that were themselves created by local elections administrators. It's called municipal redistricting wards. And there are only about 7,000, a little more, 7,200 wards drawn by local clerks in Wisconsin. And so back when that was the rule before the 2011 cycle, I think that provided something of a constraint on gerrymandering because there was just a less funny business you could get up to when you had these fewer units already drawn to meet sort of like local needs in terms of matching municipality boundaries, being close to polling places, these kinds of issues. And so that old process we had, which I think it would be good to get back to of using local redistricting wards instead of census blocks to draw these districts with, that process sort of 
automatically created some of the good government things we're looking for in drawing a new map. That was WORT's Brian Standing discussing legislative maps with John D. Johnson. If you'd like to hear the rest of their interview, check out our website at wortfm.org. The common loon may be Minnesota's state bird, but they're favorite here in Wisconsin, too. On this edition of Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg tells us all about this unique bird. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about the common loon. It is an amazing bird here in the state of Wisconsin. It is well known as being a bird of the North Woods. So if you're a Minnesota person too, I know common loons are very important to your state as well, but we do love them here in Wisconsin. So the common loon is probably one of the most notable birds that you see in TV and film, and you'll hear the the call of the loon, which has been described as the laugh of the deeply insane. If you read uh, the <laughs> allaboutbirds.org description about their vocalizations and their behavior, which is part of our wonderful group at Cornell for ornithology. I thought that was actually kind of a fun fact as I was reading up on my loon information. They have just a deep-throated, beautiful trill that can be heard across the lakes, especially at night in their unison calls during the breeding season. What a cool bird. They are also like an ancient genetic line of birds, if you didn't know. Their anatomy is a lot different than other birds. They can't actually walk on their feet. They can't walk on much more than just like a few flops out of the water when we're talking about breeding and nesting, but they can't typically walk like another bird, like a duck does, because their feet are actually angled towards the back and it is made for being able to catch fish really effectively. So their swimming techniques and the way that they use their webbed feet is just absolutely incredible. They can do a 180 flip turn within just like a fraction of a second to be able to catch a fish. So gotta appreciate loons for what they are. Now I'm talking about loons today because we did just recently admit our sixth loon ever at Dane County Humane Society. I know that sounds a little strange because you would think, well, hey, you know, Madison has a lot of lakes and we see loons out on the lakes all the time. Right now in the winter, they are in their winter plumage, which is really just a drab gray. They are mostly like plain gray above and white below, and they won't turn into their breeding plumage until we get closer in the spring and summer, which is that beautiful black and white checkered pattern that you are probably familiar of seeing photos of. Or if you go into any, you know, store in the Northwoods, there's a loon probably as an icon in a lot of different, you know, shopping tidbits and things you can take away to commemorate your experience of being up north. So the common loon right now can sometimes be mistaken for other water birds, but they are definitely here. They typically will journey a lot further south, though. So if there is ice cover and there is no open water for the loons, obviously they're going to keep moving into those open waters where they can get their fish. But if it's a warm enough year, I know Mendota and Monona, and sometimes we'll have open water for quite a while. Um, You may see them stick around for longer than expected. But typically our loons are going to move their way south as they migrate. 
And a fun fact from the folks over in Minnesota, actually, which I did not know before this radio segment, actually. And I got to say, this is actually really cool because this is an article that was written by someone at the University of Minnesota, some master naturalists who work at the National Loon Center in Minnesota. So first of all, A, that's really cool. Check it out if you get the chance. But second of all, I did not know that they were actually the first bird to kind of be identified as a snowbird, (laughs) meaning that they were the first ones to be able to be tracked through, you know, our mark recapture techniques, whether you're talking like telemetry or GPS, etc. But they moved their way down south from the northern states or from Canada, and usually obviously staying in waterways large enough for them to land on, and they need really clear water for fishing. But they'll move their way south. The first one went from, you know, kind of the Minnesota, Wisconsin area to like Iowa and then south until they reached to Florida. So that's, I think, a really fun fact to know is that that was the first one to know that they, you know, they moved south for the winter. So largely in loon populations, the juveniles will spend more time exploring for the first like two to five years and staying to coastal or water areas for fishing until they kind of find their permanent location where they want to stay. The loon that we admitted in the last week at the Wildlife Center was actually an adult. So we've actually only admitted two adults and four juveniles in total to our center. But this adult was found um, on the lake, Lake Monona, and it was kind of over by the Winniqua area, if you know where that is. But it was found unable to fly, unable to walk. It was icy. So we, you know, decided it was basically some sort of stranding issue. Seemed like there was some tenseness in one of the wings, but no obvious fractures. So this is a bird that will take long-term care through the winter, and we are very grateful to work with our partners in Wisconsin, especially rehabilitators that are located up north in our state that do work with loons more often. So we transferred our adult loon up to the Raptor Education Group Incorporated, which is in Anago, Wisconsin. And so their folks are going to be able to keep that loon hopefully through the full winter. And since they have more of those long-term and better setups for that species, since they work with them so much more, I think that's a great opportunity to, you know, be able to do that network, help each other out in those situations. But most of our loons come in from other injuries. If it's not stranding from being either a crash landing and they can't get up or an injury, most often it's going to be from ingesting fishing tackle that comes from the fish they eat. So we have had a number of loons, unfortunately, that have either passed away in care or or we had to choose with our vet team, you know, post-surgery or in surgery to euthanize for some reason because of fishing tackle that was lodged in their GI tract. So it's obviously a huge risk. So if you're a, a fellow angler out there at all listening, you know, always trying to help educate people about cleaning up their fishing tackle, their fishing line, anything that would harm the wildlife in our lakes and streams. The cleaner we can keep it for everyone, the better off. uh, And wildlife, of course, is going to benefit from that. So the common loon, obviously a very special bird that we have here in our state. Again, not a bird we see very often, but we were so glad to be able to help rescue in this situation, triage, and get him up to a northern clinic. And we are going to hope the best for this loon that came in to DCHS, but we are still available to intake those types of animals and get all of the you know veterinary types of care and diagnostics done right away so that we can figure out exactly what's going on and what we can do to help rehabilitate them if we can. So be on the lookout for common loons. They are still around since we just recently had one, but hopefully most of them are south and we'll start to see them come back in the spring here for our wonderful northern Wisconsin spring and summer season when baby loons sit on their mom's backs. It's an amazing sight if you've never seen it. So that's our segment today about the common loon and appreciating them for all that they are. And if you have any questions about wildlife or you find a loon or you need help with an animal that's sick or injured, give us a call at 608 287 3235. 
Thanks for listening here on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Dave Ahrens was your reporter. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Oliver Gerhartz, and Brian Standing of the 8 O'Clock Buzz. Super Dave Lorenzen engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Vince Hesbrick. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Spanish language news with Nuestro Patillo. Good night.